0: We're going to return then to Numbers chapter 31 and we want to look at this chapter in its totality. I have four things that I wish to highlight. I'll be a bit longer with two of the things, two of the headings, and I will be very brief with the other two headings. The title for the sermon tonight is Holy War. As I'm sure you'll realize, this is what the bulk of this chapter is about, and the aftermath of that war. We have here, the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Avenge the children of Israel of the Midianites. Afterward shalt thou be gathered unto thy people. And what we have here is Moses' last battle with the people of Israel and this is the the last real act of the people before they entered into the promised land but it was very notable for Moses himself this was the last time that he was going to command the people to go out to fight his last battle with the people and it was also the time when he was going to face the last enemy Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verse 26 it talks about death as the last enemy and here Moses was told by the Lord after this thou shalt be gathered unto thy people that's talking about death and the very fact that it says thou afterwards shalt thou be gathered unto thy people That would remind us even in the Old Testament that when death comes, it is not the end. It is not. Moses was going to be gathered unto his people. So it's quite a notable occasion for for Moses as they go out on this last battle and as he himself was about to face eh, the last enemy. Well, as I said, four things briefly that we want to highlight from this chapter. And from verses 1 to 10, we have what we call the battle. We have the battle. It was a holy war. It was against Midian. Now, we need to do a wee bit of reminding ourselves, why did this come about? Well, it came about because the Midianites hired Balaam. Remember we spoke about him. We had three nights with Balaam. And Balaam was hired by the Midianites. And they wanted this prophet, this false prophet, to come and to curse the people of God. And he couldn't. He could only bless them. Because that's what the Lord told him to do. But in order that the people would be punished by the Lord. Or in other words, that the Lord himself would punish the people of Israel. Balaam gave counsel to the Midianites. And he told them, basically, to send the women to the people of Israel. And they would then commit Immorality and idolatry with the women. And that's what happened. The Midianite women went, intermingled with the people of God, and immorality happened. And what's always closely related to immorality is idolatry. And therefore, many of the people of Israel succumbed to this temptation. And Balaam knew that if that would happen, then God would act. And that's exactly what he did. We read that primarily in, verse, in chapter 25 of Numbers. The Lord sent a plague. And 24,000 of the people of Israel were killed because of the idolatry and immorality that they engaged in. And now the Lord was going to deal with the Midianites. And if you remember the story, you will also know that the Moabites were involved. But it seems that the Midianites were the principal persons in the incident. And therefore the Lord was going to deal with them. It did not work. It did not work, ultimately. Because Balaam hoped and the Midianites hoped that what they did would bring about the downfall of the people of God. Certainly God did punish his people, but nevertheless, the people of God went on. But now it was time for the Lord to deal with the Midianites. He had dealt with his own people. And maybe the Midianites might have thought, well, it's dealt with, it's over, nothing's going to happen. But no, the time came when God was going to deal with the other party, as it were. He dealt with his own. Terrible thing happened to them. Now he was going to deal with the Midianites. We might be somewhat schemish when we think about this. And it might trouble us when we read something like this. And this is something that unbelievers can cast up to the people of God. Wasn't that terrible what the Lord instructed his people to do? To go against the Midianites and then to fight with them. And then they took the the women captive. And then when Moses found out that they took the women and uh, the children captive, the women had to be slain who were not virgins. And we look at this and we sometimes think, well, what is all this about? Surely this is, this is not right. And this is very often what people will cast up to the Christian, what kind of God do you serve who would authorize this to happen, the slaughter of women and children? Well, we have to realize what is behind this. First of all, we, need, we notice here that, or at least we notice in, in Deuteronomy, there were certain rules of engagement that the Israelites were commanded to do. When they went to war, if they came across a people that was not in the promised land. First of all, when they came across this people, they were to offer them terms of peace. If they accepted the peace offering, these people would become subjects to God's people. But if they did not accept the peace offering that the people of Israel gave them, the Lord said they would go to war against the people and they would slay the males, but they would take the women and the children as captives. Now that's for people or peoples that were not in the promised land. So they always offered them peace first of all. You can read this in Deuteronomy chapter 20. There's a whole section about it regarding the terms of engagement for the war. But what were they to do with those seven nations that were in the promised land? It was different there. They were to absolutely exterminate them. All of them. No exception. Why? because these people were wicked people. And the the people of God were going into the promised land and they were to cleanse the promised land. It was to be a holy land and those persons who had been in it beforehand did not repent after many hundreds of years and therefore the Lord was going to judge them. And The land was going to be cleansed. And the only way for that to be done was to exterminate them. That's basically the rules of conduct. If they came across a people who were not in the land, they would offer them peace. But those inside the land, there were seven nations within the land. There was no peace for them. They were going to be exterminated because they were a wicked people. And when the people of God would go into the the land, the Lord did not want those persons to in any way affect the people of God. There had to be a clean break. It was a promised land. This was God's land. And those people had to be dealt with accordingly. (coughs) Here, when the people didn't when the people didn't uh, kill the women and the children it could well be that they believed that the midianites were not in the promised land which was true they were not in the promised land and therefore The people thought, maybe, well, we're not going to kill the women and the children. But the women should have been killed. Why? Well, their chapter tells us exactly why. Because they were instrumental in causing the men to sin. Verse 14, we're told, Moses was wroth with the officers of the host, with the captains over thousands, and captains over hundreds, which came from the battle. And Moses said unto them, Have ye saved all the women alive? Behold, these caused the children of Israel through the council of Balaam to commit trespass against the Lord in the matter of Peor. And there was a plague among the congregation of the Lord. And he is, he is reminding the people that it was through the actions of the women that the men succumbed to the temptation. And if these women were going to remain, who would know what would happen again? And therefore they had to be dealt with. Those who were virgins would be left alive. Those who were not would be slaughtered. The Lord is impressing upon his people that the promised land is a holy land and the people of God are to be separate. They are to be distinct. They are to be devoted to the Lord. And this is what was happening here. This was truly a holy war. And the Lord was making an an example of those who had... Sought to overthrow God's plan because this is what the Midianites wanted to do. The Lord was wanting to establish his people in the promised land and the Midianites were out and out against God and against his plan. And therefore this truly was a holy war. Now, just in case anyone is thinking that this kind of behavior applies to us today. Of course not. That is not the case. One never knows who will listen to this, and therefore we must lay down this matter clearly so that everyone is clear about this matter. This was a unique situation. Here we are, we're in the New Testament era, and the Christian church has no warrant to engage in any such holy war whatsoever. We looked at the Lord Jesus Christ, did we not? Uh, last Lord's Day, in the evening, and we noticed how we wept over Jerusalem. This is the era we're in, where we weep for our enemies. We weep for those who are lost and perishing. We are concerned for them, and we want to see them brought to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore, we have no warrant whatsoever for this kind of behavior. This was unique. This was God's holy law. And it's very interesting, friends, if you look at this chapter, you notice that there was no mention of Joshua here. We're sure he would probably be amongst the fighting men, but he wasn't leading them. It was Phineas who was leading them. It was the high priest, and with all his holy instruments, he was there. And this was again to set the seal upon the whole thing. And if you remember rightly, in Numbers 25, about this incident we're talking about, when 24,000 people of God lost their lives through the plague, who stopped the plague? It was the actions of Phinehas. He caught an Israelite man and a Moabite woman in sexual intercourse. And he put a spear through both of them. And he was commended for his action because by his actions the Lord stopped the plague. And in this battle, we find here in verse 8, for instance, someone called Zur is mentioned. Well, Zor was the father of the Moabitish woman who was slain. Zorbi, I think her name is, if, I mem- if my memory serves me correctly. And this is all attributed to the actions of Phineas. That's why he was there. And God was setting a seal upon this action. But, this is not for the, the Christian church. The wrath of God does not the wrath of man does not bring about the righteousness of God. But we are involved in a holy war. Oh, it's not physical, of course. And yes, we do have a great high priest. We have the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't have him physically with us, but yet we have a great high priest. And we're involved in a great holy spiritual war. We war against sin. We war against indwelling sin in our own hearts and lives. And we will know something of it if we're truly Christian. And if we don't know anything of this battle, this struggle with sin, then we must question whether the Spirit of God is in us or not. Because this is part and parcel of the Christian life. This is what it is to take up the cross and to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And we want to ask ourselves then, do we know anything of this holy war? Do we struggle against sin? Is sin a burden to us? Or are we individuals who think that we never sin? Surely there is none in our midst who would come along to that kind of opinion. Surely we know something of uh, our thought life. And how easy it is for us to fall into temptation and sin. That's not an excuse. That That is a reality. And we struggle with it. And this struggle will go on. And the struggle will intensify. It will not ease as we get nearer to eternity. It will intensify. When you became a Christian, when you first trusted the Lord Jesus Christ, your sin was somewhat of a burden to you. Otherwise, you would never come to the Lord Jesus. Surely, that's a reality. Surely, we can all put our hands up to that. But, as we go through the Christian life, is sin still not a burden to us? Surely, we're more aware of our sin than ever we were. If we can identify with this, then, friends, we are in that battle. We are fighting. And we need to war a good warfare. As I said, the Christian church has no warrant for physical violence. Fighting our enemies with fists or even verbal fighting is out. For the Christian. Paul tells the Christians in Rome, Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. This is what happened here. Vengeance is mine. God was avenging his enemies. Verse 2, for instance, it says, Avenge the children of Israel of the Midianites. And then at the end of verse 3, And avenge the Lord of Midian. What's this talking about? Well, surely it's saying, when you put these two statements together, is it not saying that the Lord is identifying with his people And his people are being identified with the Lord. And therefore the Lord's enemies are the people's enemies. That's what he's saying. No, we're in that position, friends, when, as Paul goes on to say in Romans chapter 12, be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. That's our spiritual weapons. It's prayer. It's the word of God, the sword of the spirit. It's living a holy life. It's seeking to do good. And that's the way that we overcome our enemies. What happened here, obviously, it was the will of God. It met with his approval. It was necessary for the time. But we evolved in a totally different battle. But nevertheless, it's a holy battle. It's a holy war. But there's another point here we can derive from this heading the battle. Some time ago, we looked at Luke chapter 17, and there was one or two verses that, at the beginning of Luke chapter 17, that we read, but we didn't meditate upon. And verses 1 and 2 in Luke chapter 17 are very relevant to this passage of scripture that we're looking at. What do we find then in Luke chapter 17 verses 1 and 2? This is Jesus. Then said he unto the disciples, it is impossible but that offenses will come, but woe unto him through whom they come. It were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck, and he cast into the sea, than that he should offend one of these little ones. Now Jesus is talking about those who believe. And those who believe sometimes are tempted by those who don't believe. Unbelievers. They're tempted to sin. Now we might, think, might not think much of that. But the Lord Jesus Christ warns anyone who seeks to tempt the people of God to sin that they will suffer for it. This is exactly what happened here. The people of God were tempted by the women to fall into immorality and idolatry and they succumbed and many of them lost their lives. 24,000 of them lost their lives. And maybe the Midianites thought, well, it's all over. But no, the Lord had judged his people. Now he was going to judge the Midianites. He was going to take them to task because they had caused their people to sin. Now their people were responsible for falling into temptation. But so were the Midianites, responsible in encouraging the people of God to sin. Jesus said, it is impossible, but offenses will come. People will tempt us. Situations will arise where we're tempted to sin, and sometimes unbelievers will put these temptations directly before us, hoping that we will succumb. Well, if that's the case, they will get their reward. This is what this passage teaches us God will move, He will act. He does not like His people to sin. But equally he does not like people tempting them to sin. And when the time suits almighty God, he will move and act. We know that judgment does begin at the house of God, but it doesn't end there. God will judge his people, but he will also judge unbelievers. And this battle here too, friends, it pictures or portrays to us the ultimate battle. That great day of judgment. That great day when Jesus Christ will come. And all those who have tried to trip up the people of God and who have sought to thwart the the plans and the purposes of God will find that God will visit them in awesome, terrible judgment. Those in the promised land were going to be exterminated. And those here who had succumbed or who had, were instrumental in tempting the people of God, they too, would meet the judgment of God. Secondly, we have in verses 11 to 24, we have the purification. The purification. Well, they brought some women back and they had to be dealt with. But what about the booty? And what about those captives that they brought back who were able to remain with them. Well, they had to be cleansed. Everything had to be cleansed. Those who were slain were slain, but there were others who were allowed to remain with the people of God as booty, along with all the other things like animals, and precious, precious jewels and all of these kind of things, everything had to be purified. It had to be purified by fire, and or water. Verse twenty three. What does it say? For instance, everything that may abide the fire, ye shall make it go through the fire, and it shall be clean. Nevertheless, it shall be purified with water of separation. And all that abideth not the fire, ye shall make go through the water. This is again enforcing upon the people of God that they were a holy people. They were a separate people. And they were going into God's land, and they were to behave accordingly, and they were to make sure that it was to be a holy land devoted to the Lord himself. That's what it's telling them. These things might seem strange to us, but the Lord was teaching them that He's a holy God and they are to be a holy people. And everything had to be purified. And those who had been fighting, no doubt they would be in contact with dead bodies. Even them, they had to be purified before they could come back into the camp. God is holy. God is absolutely holy, and he will have his people to serve him in holiness. Thirdly, the spoils of the battle, verses 25 to 47. And basically, basically, this chapter, these verses tell us the people and animals that Israel took as spoils of war were distributed three ways. The soldiers got half. The people in the camp got half. Not absolutely exactly, but almost. We're not going to go into all the complications of the figures. But the soldiers basically got half. And the people in the camp got half. And both the soldiers and the people gave a percentage to the Lord. That's the way it was divided. Basically, the soldiers got half. The people left in the camp, they got the other half, and both of these groups gave a percentage to the Lord, the spoils of the battle. Last one. Fourthly, verses 48 to 54, we have a special gift. Here, the captains of thousands and the captains of hundreds Looked at their army. They did a count. And what did they find? Well, they found that not a single soldier was lost. Verse 49, what does it say? And they said unto Moses, Thy servants have taken the sum of the men of war, which are under our charge, and there lacketh not one man of us. Now, this is remarkable. It's remarkable because only 12,000 went to battle, a thousand from each tribe. Now, again, we're not going to go get our bogged down with the numbers, but it's obvious that a very small amount of people went against a much larger army. And not a single man was lost. This would tell us that this was a supernatural victory. This was the Lord moving and working, using a very small amount of people, relatively speaking, to overcome a great army, and there was no loss of life on behalf of the people of Israel. They had amassed a great amount of booty. They had given... A percentage to the Lord. But that was not enough for the captains of the hosts. They wanted to give something else. Verse 50, We have therefore brought an oblation for the Lord. What every man had gotten of jewels, of gold, chains, and bracelets, rings, earrings, and tablets, To make an atonement for our souls before the Lord. Now we're not going to suggest for one moment that this is some offering that would take away their sins. That's not what is teaching us there at all. That would be totally inconsistent with the word of God. But what they're doing there is, they are acknowledging the goodness of God, they're acknowledging that he was with them, they're acknowledging the wonderful victory that he would enable them to achieve, and they want to give an offering to the Lord. They're so full of thankfulness and gratefulness to the Lord, that without any prompting, they come and they want to offer to the Lord their God. It's a wonderful example. God had blessed them. And now, without any arm twisting, without any compulsion, they want to give back to the Lord their God. We're going to close by singing a part of Psalm 18. And verse 34 of Psalm 18 says, He teaches my hands to war. So that a bow of steel is broken by mine arms. The Lord had helped them. They were grateful. They were thankful. They were going to show it in a tangible manner. Every one of us, without exception, should take this on board. The Lord has been good. What has happened to us? A year has almost passed. The Lord has blessed us. We're coming to the end of the year. Let us show our gratefulness. Let us show our thankfulness to the Lord. Let us rededicate ourselves to God. Let us serve him with all our zeal. Let us acknowledge his goodness. These did. They give us special gifts unto the Lord. Chapter thirty one then, The Holy War. May the Lord bless his word to us. Let us pray together.